welcome to sin talk the sin talkers around the table today discuss the suns on earth we will think about nuclearity nuclear power and bomb its language and politics and other related questions how are the issues of energy politics economy and society intertwined must nuclear power reactors be feared where does the spent fuel go how are nuclear bombs supposed to work where are nuclear installations located can and should nuclear fusion reactions be tamed is nuclear power green power how can society decide this what are the long term ecological implications of the nuclear age what would the world look like a thousand years from now and will we have to duck and cover again we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor rb grover he is emeritus professor at homi baba national institute in mumbai and a member of the atomic energy commission of india dr dibodhuti roy he is primarily interested in post colonial and digital spaces and the overlaps between them he uses masculinity as a heuristic to understand how these spaces are negotiated he is from i am indore and dr manubhi mathai he teaches and researches on development and sustainability with an interest in energy and technology in this context he is from azim premji university in bangalore Uh so Professor Grover why don't you set the ball rolling with you in a somewhat mundane but less known spaces of the nuclear power plant um and what kind of a beast is it how how complicated complex is it to produce nuclear power relative to the other ways of how it gets done how have we landed where we are because you know if one goes from the early 20th century to where we are today a very long distance has been covered in a rather short span of time um so where are we just describe that beast to us in a you know in a paradigmatic kind of way and we'll we'll see what questions pop out of there uh, let me start with a very very mundane uh, issues we use energy day in and day out without realizing the importance of energy for human existence on this universe and this can be clearly seen if we plot population over the years and you find that population human population grew very slowly from early times till about 1700 you mean till the industrial revolution or thereabouts uh, yes and then it's, that graph takes a 90 degree turn and subsequently it started increasing very fast and everyone thinks of as you immediately said industrial revolution <laughs> was it industrial revolution because of which this happened machines have been existing right Forever. from far yeah. early times you have so many sketches made by early people of various machines but the fact was those machines were driven by muscle power by manual labor muscles could be of human beings they could be of uh, oxen animals, horses yeah and uh, that's why we had uh, so many slaves because it was a muscle powers which was dominating the coal was known 
but coal mining was very difficult because of uh, flooding of coal mines. In 1698, the first steam-driven mine dewatering pump was invented, and that changed the whole scenario. For the first time, a large amount of energy became available to mankind, and the population versus year curve took a 90-degree turn from a number as low as 300 million in the year zero, 1 billion in 1803, we are today 7.7 billion. So you, so your your argument is that this has to do with the ability to tap stored energy, which yes. is there in coal yes. and other sources. Coal was the first one. After coal, we had the petroleum. After petroleum, we uh, came to nuclear. Of course, water power has been used all along. And then we have modern renewables. This change has uh, continuously taking place. And then one more uh, particular aspect which uh, we have to remember. Uh, before the advent of automobile, it was horse-driven carriages which were being used throughout the world. And as prosperity was increasing, the people were worried about the pollution created by the horse dung. And the statistician in uh, Europe, they were trying to calculate the layer of horse dung, which will be there on the streets of Vienna and Paris and London and Berlin <laughs> as the prosperity increases. But what happens was uh, we had automobile, the scene changed, that kind of thing could never happen. And if you Google uh, horse dung and pollution, you will see the data, what was the situation in the, on the streets of New York with regard to horse dung getting pulverized in summer months and pollution spreading. The point I'm trying to make is that because of advances in science, things change, science and technology, automobile, replaced uh, horse-driven carriages uh, from coal-driven power plants, which uh, because of the ash content uh, which comes out of the stack of a power plant, carbon dioxide, we have come to nuclear energy from where we do not have that kind of pollutants. Uh, nuclear energy, as you have indicated, uh, start was only in the beginning uh, of, uh, rather in 1938, fission was uh, discovered, 1942, first atomic pile. And, uh, so that's, the, that's the Fermi pile. Fermi pile in uh, University of Chicago. So in a way, that's the first controlled That is the first controlled uh, reaction. Um, and then from there on, we moved on to uh, first power plant. Uh, uh, there again, uh, one can debate that, but uh, maybe one can ex accept that uh, openings in uh, USSR, the then USSR in 1954, where they demonstrated five megawatt power plant. Uh, though production of electricity was uh, demonstrated earlier by at Idaho National Lab by in USA, where the could light up. Uh, so, just what came one first, bulb. the nuclear bomb or the nuclear power plant? Uh, it is nuclear bomb which came first. That's kind of funny. That is, you know? a, 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 but it's uh, one of those twists. Which... Uh, it was uh, nuclear power, uh, which is, uh, uh, I think, something very important for mankind. And thereafter, uh, 
Initially, reactors were made for uh, transport purposes on a nuclear submarine, then land-based. So, units. in the early days, uh, Professor Grover, what 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 has been the core challenge of harnessing nuclear power? The core technical scientific challenge. Uh, a nuclear a nuclear reactor is a system of systems. All systems have to work together in harmony, such that. Uh, reaction is controlled and we are able to get uh, nuclear energy uh, to uh, nuclear energy can be delivered to the consumers so what are these systems uh, systems are uh, you see you it, right at the design stage in a nuclear reactor we postulate failures something similar which is done in aeronautical industry as well right supposing I'll explain by a simple example. You want to pump water to an overhead tank in a multi-story building to ensure that all the residents get uh, water all the time. If you have only a single pump, it's a mechanical device. It will fail sometime. So you always have to have two parallel pumps so that if one fails, the other can be used. Then one has to postulate, okay, electricity may not be available at times. So you would have to have a diesel generator to provide uh, electricity so basically you build several layers of uh, uh, systems such that if one fails other comes on and in this regard uh, nuclear energy had learnt a lot from aeronautical industry which had come a few decades earlier than nuclear same kind of uh, uh, thought processes goes uh, in the design of a aircraft or any so these are not just these are not just safety and fail safe features even in the design of it there are you have to add diversity you have to add redundancy so as to ensure that failure do not take place and even if failure takes place you should have passive safety system which work based on physical principles such that there is no How difficult of, was it to control the nuclear reaction Control part is uh, control devices have been existing earlier. Now it's a digital control. Earlier was a time for analog controls. Based on that, uh, nuclear reactors uh, have been controlled uh, by inserting rods, uh, which we call as the control rods and shutoff rods, which contain neutron absorbing material, which can effectively bring down uh, the rate at which a nuclear reaction is uh, taking place and it can be controlled at enough uh, feedback controls uh, are incorporated in the design of a reactor that did will the, control did the, the earliest, Did the earliest scientists, did they fear the nuclear power plant? No, not at all. Rather, it's a very uh, interesting, uh, uh, I should say, incident I can narrate from the, when the Fermi pile was being made, they were adding blocks and the chain reaction will start. And what they had is that they had a control rod, which is consisted of neutron absorbing material, which was held at the top of the pile with the help of a rope. A man was standing outside with an axe in his hand. The idea being that he will just... Cut the rope. Cut the rope and the control <laughs> rod would fall inside. Not it will terribly be okay. sophisticated. Uh, so, so with regard to being afraid, uh, one must uh, remember the fact... So the that, fear came later. Uh, I mean, at least in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the public psyche. In the minds of scientists and engineers, even now there is no fear. Scientists and engineers work on the nuclear sites in their entire lifetime. I have worked on a nuclear site and... In, during my entire lifetime, I continue to go there even now. 
So th there is no fear in the mind of scientists and engineers. What has happened is because of uh, the use of a nuclear device at towards the end of Second World War in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the public Some of these psyche, two things have got fused. Public yeah. psyche thinks of a nuclear reaction only in terms of what was demonstrated in uh, Hiroshima, Hiroshima and, Nagasaki. and Nagasaki, not what happens in a nuclear reactor. Uh, think of number of employees who work uh, in a nuclear reactor. Uh, three shifts it operates. They are the one who know about everything about the nuclear reactor. Still, they are not afraid to go in. They can. Many of them are highly qualified. They can change a job and get a job elsewhere. But they spend lifetime in uh, a nuclear power plant sites. There is no fear in the minds of scientists oh, and engineers. And that is the one which should be guiding us. If the those people who know best about a Nucle uh, nuclear power plant, about nuclear energy, about radiation, they are day in and day out uh, present there. Why should there be any fear in the minds of uh, uh, any I think public? it's probably because they are the only ones who know about it. But, you know, maybe I'll go to the youth, Dibbo. I mean, how does one think of this dynamic, right, this interplay of the few notions that we've touched upon a little bit? And, you know, I think we'll leave the science and the technology to Professor Grover and you know, revisit it a few times. But, this whole notion of fear, nuclearity, explosion, radiation, somehow they f it fuses together in this crazy amalgam, which is what it is. So what's your take on this? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. Um, I'd like to sort of take you back a few years um, to the uh, Potsdam Conference in Germany in 1945. So um, George Harrison, who was at that point the secretary to Henry Stimson, who was the secretary of war, uh, came and delivered this message to Stimson, that uh, doctor is enthusiastic and confident that little boy is as husky as big brother. Right. And uh, little boy's, uh, you know, eyes, you know, the, the light of his eyes has gone till the farm and till high hold. Right. So basically this was... Little uh, boy, the, the first bomb. Yeah. So this was actually giving him the information that July 16, 1945 has been successful. Right. And that Trinity has worked out. And at that point of time, Henry Stimson was 77-year-old, by the way. So people were really surprised that 77 is so virile. Uh, he's got uh, a little <laughs> boy. So that became one of the very interesting things. So that I'm giving that as an example to tell you, and you know, one of the things that easily comes up, you know, why is the nuclear bomb a boy? Is nuclear technology gendered? And all of those questions come in. And I'll, you know, I want to go back to Professor Grover's point about fear. And I'm using this as the route to go there. So one of the questions that comes up, and I'm, I'm a cultural historian of the nuclear bomb and nuclear technology. So that's how I look, look at myself looking at nuclear bombs. So one of the questions is, is any technology gendered? The answer is no. And I'm going to quote someone called Alex Wellerstein here, who has this fantastic comment who says, the politics of the bomb is not in its wiring diagram. The wiring diagram does so not have politics in it. So the technology per se, the object per se No is, technology yeah. per se is gendered. Now, if you go back to America at this point of time, how is the bomb being produced? What is the phase the bomb is coming out in? So I'm just going to make, give you two symbols. 1914, the American symbol of power was Lady Columbia, which is World War I. By the time you've come to 1945, it's a muscular Uncle Sam. Right. Why this change is a question you ask yourself. But then you... If you ask that question without thinking of what happens between 1914 and 1945, we're essentially missing the point. Between 1914 and 1945, two things have taken place primarily in America, which is there has been the American Depression, 
where multiple multiple uh, households have had the male breadwinner losing their jobs and a larger emasculation this is culturally represented in multiple places and the the simultaneous rise in germany of a free corp right uh, which uh, Thevelite talks about in masculine fantasies, free corps are very disciplined male bodies that are meant to sort of go into Nazi insurgency. So at this point of time, America is dealing with two threats. The threat of American depression and the threat of Nazi hypermasculine uh, Germany. So they need some kind of a symbolic artifact. A symbolic artifact that both through language as well as discourse creates situates power back into America. Was this really a driver? or This was are, are definitely one of the... No, it's not projection? a projection because there's... Um, if we go back to what uh, uh, some of the comments were made, that was at this point of time. So uh, what I'm trying to lead you to is why the bomb became a masculine artifact is essentially when the Manhattan Project was going on, the prompt given to Oppenheimer one, if the bomb is a success, it's a boy. If it's a failure, it's a girl. That's the code word. That's what. So this is called nuke speak. It's sure. the official word that's used for it. The point I'm trying to make, the larger point is, that the bomb was discursively created as a masculine artifact. How does fear come into this? Oh, so I'm coming there. So interestingly, post-1945, as Professor Grover has rightly pointed out, Hiroshima and Nagasaki played a huge role in creating. But the fear itself is also interesting. The fear, and um, there's two phases to the fear of the bomb. Um we all know 53 Atoms for Peace initiative comes up, Project Candor comes up. Project Candor is Eisenhower's first attempt at candor. The word itself says it. Uh, it's Eisenhower's first attempt to make the bomb visible to the American public. Now, there are twofold reasons for it. One is to support the American nuclear program because at this point you're facing the threat of communist Soviet Russia. And the second thing is also sort of mobilize American American sort of uh, support for it. This is, the, very, yeah. this is the nuclear bomb side of things. Yeah, book. I'm coming to the yeah, fear. Because what about the nuclear yeah, power so, side of things? So um, what happens is fear is a very good motivator for support. Mm -hmm. When you have motivated people to fear something, that I'm genuinely afraid after 1st August 1949 when first lightning comes into play, which is the first Soviet bomb, and nuclear deterrence discursively comes into force, you actually have two nuclear powers in the world. And at that point of time, you can only justify uh, this program being sustained and continued if you can generate a fear in the population. So that fear is really helpful. And uh, at a later phase... There, there, then it just plays into the Cold War. and It plays into it. the Cold War and there's obviously much more complicated politics to it. But fear, and this is actually... Uh, Eisenhower was a very religious man. He has this Augustinian realism about him. So this term of management is called apocalypse management, the management he used. And this is uh, there's an entire book by Ira Chernus from Stanford, which he says that he played everything. National security became good versus evil. Hmm. So irrespective of the the value of or the a value neutral arg uh, argument about nuclearization. Mm -hmm was not possible at this point of time because the bomb had been created for a purpose and that's what was, was being told was, to the public. Was was nuclear power, as in nuclear electricity, was that value neutral? 
I don't think nuclear power was even in the discourse for the first few years. When did nuclear power enter the US? Because that did it start there? Where were the first nuclear plants set up? Uh, first nuclear plant in uh, demonstration purposes, it was well, EBR in Idaho, Idaho uh, laboratory, the state of Idaho at Idaho Falls. And where they lighted was, only was, one bulb. Was that value neutral? I mean, as, uh, that as, as, was, uh, I should say, value neutral. Hmm. Uh, and then they started in, uh, trying to think uh, in terms of using uh, nuclear power for uh, submarines. Nuclear submarines, they have to surface, uh, the submarines in general, diesel-powered submarines have to surface so as to they can uh, breathe in oxygen. But once they are... Uh, a nuclear reactor is there they can their mission time number of years a number of uh, uh, days, days and uh, weeks they remain underwater that becomes very long their first thought so of so these are uh, all military uses uh, now. it's a military use but it's uh, one cannot say that uh, it's a destructive use military for destruction purposes there will be missiles and bombs but uh, this is only to provide power so nuclear power uh, first nuclear power reactors they thought in terms of uh, setting up in a nuclear submarine and land based unit followed immediately thereafter so it's all in the 50s that uh, all this yes, went on uh, just a quick point here so the first official document of project candor was created by the same person who created dagood and blondie comics it <laughs> is king feature syndicate right. king feature syndicate ties up with general leslie grover Leslie Grover is the general who's running the Manhattan Project. And they create a comic book called How Dagwood Splits the Atom. This is 1949. Right. Dagwood, so, well, it's, 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 it's non-value neutral in a funny, weird kind of way. So, it's yeah. it's the first time you're being shown. Kind of yeah. So, it's in a first time that this is the official publicity. You know, Duck and Cover has been there, which we might come to later. But... Um, this is the first official publicity from the Department of Atomic Energy at that point of time. It was called something else. But this is the first time that publicity comes. And that publicity is through a comic book artifact. And that's where I'm sort of trying to come back. That you're trying to make something which, even though it might not be, um, you know, something that... So you, 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 you sense something sinister? I mean, you, you sense a move I, to trivialization? No, I, I don't think it's trivialization. I think it's political. Right. That's the only point I'm trying to make. How because does, uh, there's, there's one more point I want to mention. There's something called the Frank Report. The Frank Report was submitted on July 11th, 1945, which is like five days before the um, bomb. So the Frank Report was, in fact, one of the first reports about nuclearization and... That that mentioned some of the points that Professor Grover was talking about. It did gesture towards the the power of nuclear energy to do multiple things, but it also talked about how no paradigm has existed before nuclearization where it can both be an instrument of peace and an absolute weapon of destruction. Right. This was acknowledged in the Frank report. How do you come to this, uh, Manu? Because there's this almost double-faced paradoxical thing, right? And... Obviously, one can attach words like clean and green and peace to it, which, you know, right, it right. works in some context. And obviously, there's another kind of reality and imagination. So, right. So, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a fascinating conversation, right? And I think my kind of entry into this is to um, kind of, you know, pick on something that is characteristic of nuclear power, whether it's a bomb or if it's a civilian nuclear reactor, it's abundance. Hmm. In, in the form of a bomb, it's, it's just unbelievably powerful. 
And that's also why most countries and pretty much uh, many countries want to possess the technology. And as a reactor, it promises an abundance, right? And if you go back and read, uh, you know, planning committee reports from the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and so forth. You mean in India? In India, right? right. You'll find language about, you know, just abundance and, you know, no need to wor- there's no need to worry about once you kind of uh, harness and control the technology, there's no need to worry about energy deficit anymore. All our, all our energy shortages would be essentially a thing of the past, right? So abundance is a character, is a feature uh, of nuclear power. Right. And I my kind of vantage entry here into this conversation is really um, now is abundance something that um, is valued the same right through human history. Hmm. Right. Um, Starting from the 1700s, perhaps. Right. Um, And at the cusp of the Industrial Revolution, I could it's easy to imagine a situation where more energy or more stuff is uh, is can be easily seen as adding to human well-being and welfare and improving life chances, human possibilities, and so on and so forth. Right? So more is better. More is good in a particular historical context. Now, the question that I'd like to ask is, you know, in, in the 21st century, can we still, uh, do we still take that position? Is more better, right? And what's the difference between the 1700s and the 21st century? Um, from an ecological point of view, the 1700s was essentially what uh, the ecological economist Herman Daly called an empty planet. In terms of human appropriation of natural resources, uh, human appropriation of, uh, for, for example, the atmosphere's ability to absorb pollution, all these kinds of things was essentially empty. We didn't really have a signature yeah. in an ecological sense. You know, we were just there. You know, one, 300 million people spread over the planet. Um, fairly insignificant uh, situation. Now we are in the Anthropocene, what geologists call the Anthropocene. And where the human signature, ecological signature of humanity is, I mean, we are at a point of crisis. I mean, and uh, Earth's Earth system scientists. But the question, it. the question would still remain, Manu, whether this, in a way, this link between more and yeah. well-being yes. has that broken down? Because so I, if I, it hasn't, then one can keep going, right? Yeah, I, I'll just come to that, right? Uh, so the question now is, uh, some, one aspect of this is to problematize this notion of more. Hmm. Uh, in the in the context where we really don't have more space to go into, ecological space to go into, or even social space, because what we do now in terms of accessing natural resources, whether it's coal or uranium, right, essentially happens by displacing people from their homes and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of um, in terms so you're of assuming that's the mining, that's the uh, mining, that side and of the, things, and at the other end of the the. Pipe, if you were, if you, you know, what what are we doing with pollution? What displaces more, coal or uranium? Or Clearly, thorium? coal displaces more. I mean, right. in terms of, just in terms of volumes today. So just right. the sheer energy intensity of uranium or thorium. So or the plutonium. scale is much smaller, right? So, but but I'm not necessarily distinguishing. I'm both of them are necessary. So nuclear power is an abundant energy machine, as people have written in the past, right? Um, fossil fuels are also. Much much smaller in in compared to nuclear power weight for weight, but uh, they're also essentially an abundant imagination, right? right? Um, like you know, if you write read people like Lewis Mumford who was talking about humanity's encounter with fossil fuels, buried sunshine is what the language is, right? Um, people just went berserk. Once you could mine out coal and do things with it, people went berserk, right? So. Coming to your point... Uh, it must have been magical at one point. It was. I mean, there's a fascinating... Like, like he calls it the paleotechnic era, right? And he has a fascinating uh, description, like a, really a very fascinating description about... Uh, he compares uh, humanity to a drunken heir on a spree, right? So this, this rich kid who suddenly... <laughs> his father's probably, you know, the, the father's probably died and he's just come up on all this wealth, has no idea what to do with it, right? right. Uh, that was kind of humanity's experience of just encountering coal, 
you're talking about 400 million years worth of sunshine shrunk into uh, you know a few kilometers of uh, uh, fossil fuels but the the other point you raised but it somehow doesn't have that ring of danger that it's a much more prolonged thing right i mean we we are actually in i mean the crisis we have one of the serious crises we are facing today is coal induced is fossil fuel driven climate change i mean if if we were to ask for what is the most pressing need pressing danger confronting what we consider normal right what is our civilizational normal right uh, that is climate change and that is purely 200 years of burning fossil fuels right at the scales at which we're doing it right so that's why the question of more and going back to your point about well-being right so the association for, so if you look at work by people like Vaclav Schmiel who kind of does fascinating work on, on linking energy and society and things you'll see it's not a linear relationship so if you take a society with very little access to modern energy Surely, the first hundred uh, units of energy that you provide, or hundred uh, uh, gigajoules or whatever of energy that you provide, it's immense leaps, right? From if you look in terms of mortality, I mean, infant mortality, education, literacy, all the well-being indicators will dramatically improve, right? But you can go after that, and it tapers off, right? So the question does it? Does it, it does? It does. And then there are graphs. This is published work. I mean, there are which you can actually see it, right? You can plot countries on these HDI versus energy consumption charts, and you'll see that it's a tapering graph, right? And that's an important lesson for us because there is a point at which we've but had enough one, energy. But one doesn't make these graphs for the world, right? One makes these for countries. individual countries, economies, regions, yeah. and so on. And energy is consumed. Energy as an electricity or energy or power is consumed locally. It's not. Uh, so, so local consumption. So, so there are parts where consumption needs to go up, which means production needs to go up, and so on. Right? Or reallocation or redistribution needs sure. to happen, right? And uh, what is reallocation of energy? It's essentially an ability to buy energy, and that's essentially an economic uh, rearrangement of wealth and income, and so is, forth. Is 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 uh, uranium, plutonium, thorium, whatever, Professor Grover, are they plentiful? Are they? Uh, of, you know, of course, we'll, we're, we're thinking of the risks or whatever, but if one had to mine them or harness them, can one go for centuries? Plentiful, yes. One has to see in terms of uh, how we, how much energy we want to use. As Manu has pointed out, that uh, it's as an important electricity question. use increases, human development index increases. And it uh, increases very sharply at the beginning. Later on, it uh, tapers off after uh, our per capita consumption of around 4,000 kilowatt hour per annum per capita. Uh, so considering that uh, 4,000 to 5,000, I would like to take something like 5,000 uh, per capita per annum as the kind of electricity which we should have. So if have, that's uh, the number, is, is, the, is, is in, say, in a country like India. Uh, so from that one can estimate what exactly is the total requirement of electricity in India, 5,000 kilowatt hour per capita per annum multiplied by the population, we maybe will stabilize at 1.6 billion. We need something like 8,600 terawatt hour or a billion units per annum. You have enough to fire that for the next minute. Yeah, we are currently, last fiscal, we generated 1,600. For 1,600, we have to go to 8,600. Now, we have to see the resources in this context. Coal is definitely not going to last uh, for more than a few decades once we reach that level. Uh, nuclear, yes. Uranium, when worked in a closed fuel cycle, uh, when we work uranium 
in an open fuel cycle, once through cycle, we use less than 1% energy potential of uranium. But moment we go to a closed fuel cycle, theoretically we can exploit 100% of uh, energy potential of uranium. So what's the difficulty with that? Like uh, why, why Difficulties, is... we are, uh, technologies are being developed. There are, it is all known. But as I said earlier, a nuclear reactor is a system of systems. It has to be engineered in such a way so as to ensure that there is never any accident. And if accident takes place, there is no radioactive fallout in the public domain. That is the basic criterion. Uh, which one has to follow. So, uh, first uh, prototype fast breeder reactor, uh, if I talk about India, is uh, being commissioned at uh, Kalpakkam. Russia is uh, uh, also developing similar technology. They have a uh, fast so reactor that's a operating. Much, sure. And China is also developing these technologies. And uh, they all have uh, experimental fast reactors working. Other countries, uh, other advanced countries, including France, USA, they, for them, uh, particularly France, it's at the development stage. Eventually, they, were also, they are also thinking of uh, building fast reactors. And once we have fast reactors where we are able to close the fuel cycle, then nuclear energy using uranium and known resources of thorium is there with us for several centuries. I think so enough Manu, time. So, what's the difficulty with this? I know this is a technocratic kind of argument. Right, right, I think right. one gets that, but right. which is why I'm going to somebody like you. Yeah. Uh, on a piece of paper, this sounds fine. It looks like there's a technological puzzle. Maybe one will commission a few plans, see right, what works, right. what doesn't improve it, right, right. get there in a matter of one or two decades. Right. So, this sounds like a one of those cases of human beings with their ingenuity and so on, right. taming something. Sure. And, I think, you know, we've done that in the past mm -hmm. with fire and this right, and that. Right. So, Cup, so yeah. what should one be careful about? I think a couple of responses, right? Uh, one, just going back to the point of horse dung hmm. and that being pollution, hmm. right? Um, the f between the 1600s or 1700s and now, what has stayed a constant is pollution, <laughs> irrespective of the technology. Horses are out, so we're no longer polluting the surface, and, you know, the World Health Organization will tell you that uh, today 9 million people die of pollution, premature deaths in the world. Wars kill about 500,000 people. <laughs> so one in 18, one eighteenth of what pollution kills, right? So I think that that should bring in some level of caution in terms of the possibilities of technology, right? Because um, what... Are, you know, I think nobody when when but horses. That's, that's pollution is just the exhaust side of any machine, right? Not just exhaust. I mean, now you have okay for certainly since you use petrol or diesel and so on, so you have exhaust, right? But what about the other? What happens to these things once they once they die, right? Uh, what happens to the tires and the plastic and the oils and I mean the whole host? And these are fairly highly intensely fabricated machines. And is, is, is nuclear power green power? Is, because it's emission-free. I mean, if you, if you were it's to... It's energy. Right. If you were to compare uh, per unit carbon emissions, it's in the, in, in the order of tens of uh, grams of, uh, sure. uh, of, of green uh, CO2 per kilowatt hour because you, look, you have to account for the concrete and all that kind of stuff. But if you compare with coal, it's like an order of magnitude high, hundreds of units of... Like, roughly, you can say uh, one kilogram for coal and probably, I don't know, less than uh, 50 grams for uh, nuclear power, right, in terms of CO2 emissions. So, in that limited sense, it's not. Sure. Uh, it's, it's not a... But that is not your argument. Yeah, that's not my argument. My argument is then you would have to ask, see this, going back to the point about more and how much, hmm. right, how do societies ask that question? Right? And I'd like to jump in there for a quick point. So, I, I want to sort of connect the fear and the abundance and so uh, that Manu talked about. So, 
when we talk in uh, language about abundance, one of the things that one of the concepts that has been used is the concept of the sublime. Mm. Right? When we can't express something linguistically, mm. we make it a sublime concept. So Kant had two forms of sublime, the dynamic sublime and the mathematical sublime. The dynamic sublime is something like a volcano. You look at it, you know it's dynamic, it's working, and it's so out of your language that you call it the dynamic sublime. The mathematical sublime is something like the universe. You stand in front of it and you can't fathom how, how big it is. The nuclear sublime, the argument has been made, is a combination of the dynamic and the mathematical. And the reason why something as imminent as climate change is often not understood or given its due importance is because it's not as spectacular as the nuclear. A it's much change. more incremental. A slow change. A slow change. And in fact, even the, the potential of nuclear energy to do good for society and the debate in it in the right register and you know, this is very important in the right register, by which I mean in the right spaces between the right kinds of people, is unfortunately not taking place. That's because we don't talk about nuclear as a solution for the future. We keep thinking of nuclear bomb as the way we started this conversation, as the bomb, not as something green that Manu's talking about. And this is the kind of conversation that needs to happen more and allows non-specialists, if you, if you use the term very loosely, Non-specialists, by that I don't mean non-academics, but non-nuclear engineers. I'm not but saying that nuclear is green. Right. Right. Okay. So, uh, so my my question here is, I was going back to the what point about what makes something green. No, no. Just to stay with the point of what you know, how do how do societies decide what is enough, how much is enough, right? And so this is this is, you know, so we came to four thousand kilowatt hours, five thousand kilowatt hours. As a as a number, right, and then we project it from there, right. I think the conversation could perhaps be a little more deeper and ask, you know, what kinds of energy, what forms of energy, and what is really the relationship between energy and well-being. We have a broad relationship, right, but that's a question that deserves considerably more scrutiny, right? Because if you're looking at heat, how how what does one do? If if it's if you're looking at heat, it doesn't all have to be electricity. Yeah. <laughs> right. You can do other of other forms of like heat than electricity, right? So so I think the we have to ask so. When you talk about well-being or the good life and so on and so forth, these are fundamentally normative questions. What is a good life? I mean, you have certain objective conditions about health achievements and so forth. You know, what does it take to live 75 years and stuff like that or being educated and like sending everybody to school or infant mortality. But beyond those kinds of basic things, it's a normative question. Now, how does a normative question encounter a technology choice point, right? That necessarily requires that the process of technology choice, the process of development policy and that interface between energy and technology is democratic. Absolutely, it's opened up. Now, now, so let's let's take this question a little bit head yeah, on. Yeah. Um, do you think the nuclear question right. is that a question? Is that is that a ponderable? When you say in, nuclear, in, the, in this context, it's, it's a nuclear question is is a difficult thing to democratize because see the thing is it's it's a te- it's a technology that is immensely powerful, right? And you don't want it to be kind of uh, kind of opened up for everybody, right? You, but it's by the specialists for the others. So by specialists for the others, but then who determines? How much en- See, the question, how much energy do we need, right? What is well-being? How but that's th- not a nuclear energy question, it's an energy question. But certainly that cannot, nuclear is not separate from that problem, no, right? I, I, Here, I, uh, this energy question is, public is determining how much energy we need. If you see the last 10 years, CAGR for electricity right. consumption, it's 6%. And when people say that uh, we do not need that much of energy, I just want to, I was looking at the trade data. 
you see sale of air conditioners in india is right. going at a rate of 14% per annum right. air conditioners that's, need energy to so, run so, yeah. so manu has a point of view that's that, an interesting right. and cold storage sure. cold storage 20% sure. growth per I annum think, in the industry yeah, so grow the point is not that there is no demand is, i think so i don't think just, the point is that there's no demand i think it's important to clarify just just that's a very interesting example i'm glad you brought it up right air conditioning right what is driving the demand of air conditioning we are a country that gets 300 days of sunlight so it's kind of obvious that you know it's going to, it's going to be a warm place and people would desire comfort and i can air conditioning is an aspect of the comfort but how do you approach that comfort is it only through air conditioning or are there possibilities of architecture right and i think this is where we've actually our imagination has missed the boat in some sense we've just said okay we can all buy air conditioning and put it in our houses and we'll be comfortable but why is that why is that choice even possible because you don't think about energy as something to think about because abundance hai aa jayega right but as opposed to if you had sat sat back and said we don't have that much energy or it's not appropriate or whatever to demand so much energy then the question would be okay aren't there ways of building our houses that don't need this kind of I, cooling I, I, so I, I your think, argument mano is yeah. that let's think of energy as limited let's not think I of would, it no, as no, not, 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 what does one do what what's the no i might think you, uh, just a quick point i don't think manu's argument is about energy is not needed versus energy being needed his question is about democratization mm. yeah. so if you look at back at 1979 and the three mile island incident the people who suffered most from the three mile isle incident or even the hanford downwinders if we talk about it if i talk about the hanford downwinders you remember the hanford incident the 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 river that was most polluted was the columbia river sure and the people who took water from the columbia river were native americans a minority population even if you look at the snake river alliance which came up around inl idaho national laboratory it's people who are not understood to be normative subjectivities who get affected by our need for energy the which most. is the question of where are these things located and situated that is the point who takes the decisions of locating a nuclear power plant in an area close to subjectivities who are not normatively understood to be powerful subjectivities so if if these plants are totally safe or very close to safe why are they located in very far flung locations so grow uh to locate like could, could there be nuclear plants in the center of a city uh, maybe a time will come when safety standards will go that high that they could be located near the uh, load centers which are large cities but currently bring supply where the demand is. yes currently for the location of nuclear power plants location is chosen to uh, find out number one it should be seismically stable right. number two there should be a large body of water available close by because cooling requirement is there and then of course we do not want a very large population around at this moment there are strict uh, regulations with regard to that and that distance uh, we call it exclusion zone this is only 1.6 km around a, a nuclear power plant so nuclear power plants are safe and as uh, we are able to demonstrate safety on a longer term basis for several more reactors they perhaps can be brought so, closer to the city centers so when you think of the statement uh the nuclear power plants are safe what what goes through your mind so while i do not want to contest the idea whether sir uh, professor grover has called it about system of systems mm. i do not question the epistemic grounding of that it is in the system of systems and it's very closely monitored but let's ex- take examples for example jadugora is used for uranium mining by ucil 
Jadugura is close to thorium deposits. Right now, carrying thorium from Jadugura to someplace else is difficult. Hence, we have a uranium um, uh, sort of processing plant at Jadugura. There have been um, conversations around why Jadugura was chosen and the answer is quite clear. But there have also been conversations around how it has affected the livelihood of people around Jadugura. Now, this is not just one example. There's but obviously, that, would, that would hold for all kinds of mining. That's true. For all extractive industries. But not industries. all mining has the kind of fallout that uh, a nuclear prod- product or radioactivity creates. So these are again big questions. Jaitapur would be another place. Um, you know, Haryana had an NPCIL power plant where it has an RTI by the Bishnois against it. So the question is, again, we need the energy. We need to have more conversations. That conversations, as Manu has rightly pointed us in the right direction, is unfortunately not happening. And the conversations also have to have minority subjectivities in it. By minority subjectivities, I mean people who might not be literate in the understanding of what we understand as literacy. Right. So when you think of these as system of systems, do humans and human systems are a part of it, isn't it? Absolutely right. So, uh, so this 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 question of safety is very interesting because um, can we have a hundred percent safe reactor, right? So, so I guess nu- one way of characterizing nuclear power perhaps would be you know very low probability uh, ac- you know of actually things going wrong, but if things go wrong, they just go wrong terribly, right? And I think f- as we speak, Fukushima is probably sitting kind of a figure, you know, in some sense under our noses, right? And 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 the, and the lesson you're learning from there is, we, what, it's 2011 now, eight years since it happened, we still haven't seen what happened inside, right? That's the level of difficulty in actually even approaching. The, the, the companies in Japan are trying to fashion robots which can deal with the level of radioactivity to actually take in some kind of So was there a radioactive leak in Fukushima? No, right? No, uh, there was... Oh, yeah. Uh, Fukushima is a accident. If we we can start with the, the three accidents, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima. In case of Three Mile Island, there was no leak of radioactivity outside the containment. Everything was contained. So, what inside. is containment? Containment is the one a, a concrete building which surrounds the entire reactor. Uh, uh, it designed specifically to ensure that nothing leaks out of the containment. So, All radioactivity remains inside the containment. But that's not the same as saying nothing bad happened. Uh, uh, the accident did happen, right. but radioactivity was confined within the containment. There was no release of activity in the public domain. So why? So, so yeah, is that okay? Yeah, no, please, Manu can go ahead. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, see, with, with, no, uh, I, I think I, I yeah, I, guess, uh, I think what I'm trying to get all of us around yes. is what does one mean by accident? So look, okay, so, sure, something, sure, sure. yeah, I mean, something that, bad happened. No, one has to kind of go beyond think through, that. Think to, what happened right. in Fukushima, right? So the reactors were built in the '60s. Right, and you had a magnitude nine point something earthquake, unprecedented amount of energy being released. Right, what happened? I mean, and Japan is a country that is intensely technological. Right, so you have bullet trains running; they all stop. Sure, sure. The reactors stop. So, the, and the reactors in Fukushima actually stopped as they were designed to do. What happened? What went wrong? You had a cooling system that kicked in, then the power supply goes off because of the earthquake. You have a backup, as you said. You have a backup cooling system, diesel generators. What was the problem? The tsunami wave was higher than what the planners had expected. Sure. Now, how do you plan for something that you don't know? Yeah, that's the perfect story. <laughs> yeah. I, I think uh, here, uh, let me uh, yeah. say add something to this. 
planners had company had been told by the regulator yes. this diesel generators are located at a lower elevation please raise them sure. there was a power plant close by at ongawa where uh, nothing happened right. but here the TEPCO. owner of tepco company was kept on delaying right. that raising point, of the whole uh, thing that's grower, a different yeah. i think so, the so point process grower is that when one one says something as a system of systems eventually human beings yes, yes, are involved yes, yes. and you know somebody makes a call somebody has to go home early somebody is negligent all, all, all kinds of things, things happen it is very interesting <laughs> it's, 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 you have to ask right tep now why is tepco delaying this i mean sure and there's some boardroom calculation going on around costs involved yeah. right now how, can you separate that political economy from nuclear power, nuclear engineering they're not right? right and so that's one kind of story that inseparability of these systems of systems in some sense right. the other question right look at markets look at countries of the world where nuclear power is financed through uh, equity like private like stock market you raise sure. money on the stock market right us is a classic example the us is struggling to get its nuclear industry commercial nuclear industry underway because private money is extremely hesitant to insure or invest in nuclear power why because the regulatory regime has so many requirements and it's so cumbersome in some sense because you want to make sure nothing goes wrong right and so that that is fed into an you know it's a very very uh, risky investment if you would the countries that are investing heavily in nuclear power are largely state driven russia china india right now you have the saudis who want to they, that's because the iranians and the saudis have their own dynamics the japanese are they were heavily committed but after fukushima they're a little but but uh, shinzo abe is very pro nuclear korea is kind of in a lull right but they're all kind of keen to export their technologies now right so that's also another kind of question that comes to my mind is why isn't private money flocking to nuclear power if it's this great thing right if it's if it's because you have money private money going elsewhere and if and if insurance companies are hesitant why do we have to have treaties which basically say that you know if something goes wrong there's a 500 million dollar or a kind of trivial number uh liability that the operator has to bear rest of it goes on to the public correct so when you ha- get into these spaces right if it is really not something to worry about i would just expect it to be open and okay i'm an operator i mean most thing i run car companies don't say that <laughs> you know i if something goes wrong that i'm not liable what is your hunch on this no i have a, like a quick point here which is i think we are sort of debating two things capital cost versus human cost right so capital cost of nuclear power is actually 67 dollars per megawatt and versus uh, sort of gas which is 16 dollars per megawatt now um, by by nature that is because nuclear power is more difficult to set up initial capital is more but on the long term this evens out right now i think india has sort of a, a, a average of 3.55 rupees per anyway, kilowatt I think hour the numbers are fine yeah so i think what we are the cost is is the capital cost justifying the human cost or the possible human liabilities that might come out of it and is that a question we are considering every day how does one assess the risk by considering not oh, only so when when you say human cost what do you by mean by human cost i mean broadening the definition of human beyond people who have the power uh, to to make these decisions take those decisions to have a much more i think going back to manu's point about democratization and that is difficult how do you think of the human I, cost I, i think this is a very interesting uh, uh, question which has been raised uh, by debu and this we have data with regard to accidents in the which have happened in the past uh, this is maintained by paul scherer institute in uh, switzerland 
in terms of fatalities per terawatt hour of electricity generated. I think the point is whether fatalities New, are the only cost. No, I, I'm just coming to both. I'll come. First is fatalities. In case of nuclear, it is minimum as compared to all other uh, electricity generating technologies, including solar. This is with regard to you fatalities. You mean fatalities per megawatt Fatalities or per terawatt hour of electricity per, generated. Right. I, I won't go sure, to the sure, numbers, sure. but fine. the coal is very high and uh, this is minimum. So if one Second, looks at numbers cold, nuclear is right at the bottom. Nuclear is right at the bottom. Second is with regard to uh, externalities. Right. Uh, something which is nobody counts. Uh, this is uh, externalities means that uh, let us say we have emissions from coal-fired plants and those emissions are inhaled by people living Everything around sure. and uh, they are not they may not be necessarily consumer of that electricity but they end up it is a cost. Pay, it, they end up paying in terms of lost health costs lost working days uh, fatalities chronic illnesses so on and so forth yeah. so this external cost of various energy producing technologies has been assessed over long periods of time both in Europe and the USA in India we have not carried out such a study there again external costs for nuclear are much lower than coal and hydro and so Manu, gas again, and solar. So again, mm. it's it's a kind of argument. I yeah, know these are yeah. numbers yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. it sounds cold. What's 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 the problem with this? So I think uh, the, I think it's interesting. See now the I, I guess I have a question actually. In I think the the the, yeah. the the core question in a way floating around in this room yes. is that there seem to be some of these arguments. Now it's right. a 50, 40 year long technology industry, some really yeah, fantastical yeah. accidents have happened. Right. Um, but it seems to have data to suggest that it's right. it's it's not it's not crazily risky on a sheet of right. paper, but right. the risk perception is crazily right. high, in, uh, including See, in our I minds. Think, I think one is, uh, I think it's important, how do you attribute um, the cause and effect, right? Especially with, with something like nuclear. I mean, let's just step back and look at tobacco. Tobacco and lung cancer. Right, all of us remember how difficult it was to make that association. Yeah, yeah. Right. So again, with nuclear power, I mean, I think if you're if, if you're kind of exposed to an explosion and you kind of get irradiated and you die that next day, I mean, that's an obvious kind of thing, right? So Chernobyl probably had thirty people, or Fukushima probably had a handful of people, right? But how do you deal with this kind of the 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 kind of this curve of low level exposure, right? So you mean radiation? Radiation. Radiation. So the half so the life, full body burden. Yeah. So this is the full body burden, right? The yes. amount of toxicity you carry in your body. And not just mortality, morbidity. So I, I think that uh, here I, 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 I know, like Professor to Grover come in here again. He's uh, lived around uh, reactor. I will uh, again speak in terms of numbers yes. because in my view, my scientific training tells me what can be measured yes. can always be addressed. That issue. sure. Uh, so let us see, radioactivity is present everywhere, right? In this room, there's a radioactivity yeah, present. Yeah, there's a certain level and the uh, average around the globe is 2.4 millisieverts. Okay. Okay. But there are certain locations around the world where this is very high. Yeah. In India, we have Kerala. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a particular area, one particular city where this level is uh, many times more. And in Iran, there is a location where it is uh, around uh, 100 times more than this 2.4 millisieverts. People are living there. So basically, we have to look around. Humans are living with radioactivity. And these small numbers, which we are saying, which are always around us, is not something we is, should is, be afraid of. Is, is radiation a non-risk? 
रेडिएशन वेन एट लो लेवल इट इज अस्क बाई रेडिएशन आई थिंक वी नीड टू क्वालिफाई रेडिएशन इज कॉस्मिक इन नेचर everywhere in the world you have radiation you know. but what we are talking here of is militarized radiation that's a different storyline altogether because the idea of radiation as professor grover has already pointed out radiation is not a post nuclear factor radiation has been there even before uh, bravo or mike was explored in bikini atoll island by the way just sort of a quick point the amount of carbon dating right now actually depends on the amount of radioactive isotopes we carry in our teeth and right. that is actually a result of many of the nuclear explosions that have happened with us so right. so just to point out i think just there's there's a difference here to understand what do we qualify as radiation what kind of radiation are we talking about that radiation being coming from what sources the sources are important is what i wanted to sort of why the sources are important because the because radiation is radiation so uh, what do you mean by sources okay, are important okay. so, so let me let me, I mean, let me sort of if, let me if, sort of if i'm exposed to radiation now of course we are all exposed to radiation all the time the point is that as i think manu has pointed out what is the so if you th- think of strontium or cesium these kinds of radiation which come out as the byproduct and what amount of it comes out one of the problems is we only think of immediate results of radiation so what happens if you are at the ground zero you become a shadow but what happens if you have been slowly exposed to radiation over 50 years long term effects what happens if those radiation effects cannot be quantified in the very number of 2 years 3 years because the half life of the waste industrial power plant in new new mexico which is the power plant where us stores its radioactive waste is 12035 years that's beyond human imagination so the the the, the longer the half life the safer it should be because uh, the rate of radioactive no, decay is slower yeah here we have to think in terms of a closed fuel cycle So yeah, where does spent fuel go? So in close, yeah, close, close fuel, fuel cycle, cycle stays spent inside. Spent fuel is reprocessed, and heavy metal that is uranium and plutonium is recovered. It is fabricated into fuel and again uh, used as a fuel in a fast reactor. So uh, Manu, are you happy with it? Manu, are you happy with closed fuel cycle? Would you think of that with? Uh, With, with right. So there are two two lines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there are two lines to my 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 yeah. observations here. Right. One is the whole energy democratization. Right. Democratizing the energy society relationship. That's a separate, entirely separate discussion. Compared to whether it's more mortality, morbidity, and so on and so forth. Now with the closed fuel cycle, I think. See, certainly, I think you're reducing the volume of waste. Yeah. Right. But you're also then creating. Why was why 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 haven't we been reprocessing? Wait mm-hmm. for a long time because uh, when Jimmy Carter basically took a moratorium on reprocessing, it was about not allowing plutonium to the possibility of plutonium kind of entering the proliferation, the weapons proliferation right. space, right? So, so that's why the nuclear power and nuclear bomb come together. Because everybody right? wants it, yeah. <laughs> right? All the bad guys want it, right. right? And they can't do it themselves. So you, I mean, you can't reprocess in a garage. Correct. So, uh, so the question then becomes: If we're going to set step into like a uh, what? To 500 gigawatts of nuclear power, that kind of an expansion of uh, 200 gigawatts of nuclear power, that kind of expansion, you're really going to see a vast increase in volumes of these things floating around. So that there's an interesting point there that just the 
scale of it proliferation itself would make the whole thing more risky you have more of it around right so even if you have a minuscule percentage of leaks i mean from the system right is a highly guarded very well regulated system but you can't have absolute certainty of no leaks but you really need very little of it to create havoc i mean that's that's the proliferation risk. you mean you mean the kind of risk where bad guys get their hands on yes it. yeah if you if you if you are going to start uh, reprocessing plutonium which we do right we take a bit of it into the breeder reactors a bit of it goes into the weapons program right that's how we do uh, reprocessing right and uh, so it's all well and good to do it i mean then you have to take on that extra burden of things so my question is how much do we need of this are the weapons uh, are they intertwined so and I, how they exist in the real world so i want to make a quick point here that india is one of the few places where we are actually working with waste really well mm. so we are one of the few places where high waste and we have an intermediate waste category which is not there in many other countries and where low waste category the vitrification that happens you know you solidify the waste and concentrate and contain that is not the question here the question is different the question is when nuclearization as a technology is made into this post colonial fetish of power and that power needs to be justified at any cost doesn't matter whether it's human doesn't matter whether it's capital and when you have that kind of a linear teleology these questions of democratization of safety go out of the question out of the mind of people so you mean it gets used by political actors absolutely. for political purposes absolutely and Now, uh, yeah that itself is is not a verdict on whether it's good or bad no right? it is not as i've told you i started out by saying so how does one disentangle that by involving more people in that conversation how like what does it mean by, to have more conversations by, because to have these kind of discourses that is currently happening the room itself of four people talking about this technology is itself an extension of nuclearity beyond breeder sites and reactors yeah uh, here uh, let me say that you <laughs> talked about uh, us uh, not uh, going in for fast reactor subsequent to jimmy carter's uh, decision in uh, way back 70s, several years in 70s uh, there's a another side to it the there was a blue ribbon commission appointed by in us appointed by the president in 2010 and 2012 their report came up their report advocates yeah. going in for fast reactors their report advocates developing molten salt breeder reactors yeah. and basically the what they are trying to say is we should continue to do r&d yes. to follow closed fuel cycle and us is advocating what they are calling as retrievable repositories such that you store the spent fuel which is in a retrievable right. fashion that they can take out yes. they are essentially keeping their option to retrieve the spent fuel reprocess it and go in right. for fast reactor at any future date right right absolutely and another uh, earlier i think someone said that only those countries i think you said that uh, who are uh, having uh, nuclear power in uh, under government they control the yeah. they are going in for it UK is a country where it is not with the government but they are setting up right. nuclear power plants and they are saying without nuclear their energy problems are not going right. to be solved right. they are they are signed up with right. EDF where even china is investing china, yes. money and they are going ahead with expansion of uh, right. nuclear power and germany is of example cited often but let us also remember that after germany went Uh, on a renewable energy space on a large scale 
the prices of electricity mm-hmm. in Germany is more than anywhere else in Europe, and it is twice that what is in France. That's and their carbon solar, footprint, right. carbon footprint has not decreased, but in the last five right. years, if you see, it has increased. Right. Now so, this 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 link, Debo, uh, between state and and nuclear power, nuclear technology, seems like an unbreakable one, no? Because obviously there are sovereignty, security kind of dimensions added to it. Um, so I mean, where I'm going with this is in the direction of the future, right? So if you think of this over the next several decades, century, maybe thousands of years, where is all of this headed? Nuclearity in general, if one were to ask you, nuclear technology, nuclear power, because I mean, at this point in time, emotions are quite crazily mixed up. Now, there's some people making decisions in this way or that. But where is this headed? Will I'll make a quick comment and I'll then let Manu take over. You cannot escape nuclearity, whether as a power plant or the fact that you need, even for chemotherapy, you need radiation. Yeah. The question is, how do you make it accessible, and how do you make it? Democratic Even is, as an epistemic object, absolutely. as something to be understood. Even if it's an epistemic object would be a knowledge object, yeah. but I want to go back to the ontology of it. Mm. What is the sense of the nuclear? Before we decide what the ontological sense of the nuclear is, what is it for? Who is it for? What does nuclear exist for? So why is nuclear power establishment so secretive? I don't why, think why, it, why should it be? Uh, as far as the nuclear power plants are concerned, they are not secretive. Rather, because of the knowledge which we have gained about nuclear technology, one aspect which is always forgotten, that non-power application of nuclear, which, is, which are everywhere around us, they contribute many more time to GDP than nuclear electricity. Nuclear is used in, uh, is, is, in is, medical... Is, are nuclear technologies secretive? Are they state secrets? No, they are not state secrets. They are... Uh, everything so, is so in the you, textbooks. when you say that they're not a part of conversations, Debo, what exactly is the refrain? I, I think I'll let Professor Grover finish the, and... Uh, the, the nuclear, uh, every, nuclear science and engineering, everything is in the textbooks which are available in open domain. What is maybe a secret, how much stockpile of a certain material a country has... That is then the why, secret why part. Can, can bad guys just buy textbooks and somehow lay their hands on some of this uh, stock? Oh, it's, it's not that easy. No, it's not that easy. <laughs> it's not uh, easy. It's just not easy. Well, it sounds... At least uh, in uh, a country like ours, where we have, I should say, rural flaw to sufficient extent, and again, in other developed democracies, this kind of things are not possible. I, I think the key question that I think I understand you pointing out is um, why the secrecy, at least... Why the understanding that nuclear is secret yeah. more than the secrecy itself? The language itself. Why Why do we imagine that it's a secret? There's something to do with the language. Something with which must have happened. Yeah. So why Why is this language so secretive? The, the actual domain, it's called techno-strategic language. Language that is only accessible to a few people. And that kind of language actually creates a barrier between conversations. So this has been uh, this has been there for a long time. And while I do understand Professor Grover's point about, you know, it's really in the public domain. Yes, it's in the public domain, which is absolutely undebatable. But the point is, is it in being in the public domain, does it mean it's accessible? 
I don't know. Yeah. See, I mean, I think uh, this this question of secrecy, right? Now, yes, nuclear physics and engineering you can buy textbooks and you can read them and perhaps understand some, develop some conceptualization of how this happens, right? But it would be nice, for example, in our country to have nuclear engineering and physics programs in regular universities, right? So, so that so you would have a sociology department and a political science department, and you'll have students from all these departments interacting, right? So you so you, what you're doing in that sense is socializing nuclear nuclear know-how, right? So these kids who are studying nuclear physics or engineering also begin to have other imaginations of what... So you ask questions of how much energy, what energy, and so you have a much broader imagination. Right now it's secluded, really, under one establishment, right? So I think that is the kind of openness, right? And for example, information on, for example, I can't really... What about, the, what about the decision-making infrastructure? So the decision-making infrastructure, as it was imagined when Nehru and Baba were around, is essentially Baba reporting to Nehru, right? It was AEC, three member AEC at that point, and the... So Bhatnagar being there as well. Sorry? Bhatnagar being there as well. Yeah, Bhatnagar, but he was secretary, Correct. and chairman was Ababa. And Correct. so the, the relationship at that point, and Nehru even justifies in parliament, he said, we need this level of secrecy because we de- are dealings with other countries. They will not be confident in sharing some know-how with us if we don't promise secrecy, right? That's kind of the language that Nehru uses in Parliament. And so the original conceptualization of the atomic energy establishment in our country was one where the chairman reported directly to the Prime Minister's office, not even the cabinet, right? Is the global nuclear atomic age or order, is that secretive? Well, I think different... Why why is there this air of secrecy around it if it's not in fact secretive? As far as nuclear power is concerned, everything is in public domain. And uh, why we have a certain university structure here? Why not a different university structure? There are larger issues related to employability. It is not because of anything to do with, uh, uh, for example, if a person has done studied a subject for which employment is only in Department of Atomic Energy, if he doesn't get employment there, where does he go? It arises from those considerations. It has nothing to do with the secrecy. Uh, of uh, nuclear power, uh, such uh, there are enough programs uh, in nuclear physics and nuclear so what's chemistry the future, outside. Mano? What's the future of nuclear power? I think the more important the question future? to us is what is our future, <laughs> and I think you know. I think the question is: see, the I think we what's should, the future of yeah nuclear dash right nuclear, nuclear technology? Dash. And I think and when you ask that question, we must remember that nuclear is merely a contingent on human future. Because it also seems to have this promise of being a solution. Right I, of sorts. Now I I know you've yeah. raised the broader, more fundamental question of whether more is better. And right. I think one has thought of that See, flatness. If, if we are to if we are to go through this present phase, you know, we are talking about sixth extinction. I mean, just I mean, the, I think we the, we have to get a better grip on the on the situation that we are in today. Right. And what, what the, role does nuclearity play in this? And so offer the promise of more, and thereby not kind of uh, diffuse the urgency of these questions is unhelpful. Right? But it also offers the promise of less pollution, less emission, less many, many Not things. Not really, because you're no. using the elect- what are you using the electricity to do? You, you're saying basically using the electricity to cut the same forests and make the same cars and do the same things. I mean, that political economic set of relationships... So that's a multivariable problem. And those... So. those that political economy, to use kind of jargon, right, is not really opened up, right? And I think that, for me, is the biggest concern. And also, I think who are the futures for when you ask the question, what is the future? There cannot be a unified view of future. Futures are very different for different... So you're referring positions. to these other subjectivities yeah, and things absolutely, that you're... Absolutely. The futures of someone in um, rural India is not the same as the future. So the metropoles, and in India there's a very, very rural population, three-fourths of our population is rural. We have to imagine that the metropole future is not the only future. 
there are multiple futures in a country of 1.32 billion people. 1.32 billion futures. <laughs> what should the future be then? Of again, we're talking of nuclearity, right? About this, 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 this so-called sun See, on Earth. I think Earth. The, the answer is not for us to give, right? What we can argue, no, no. <laughs> I think I, the, what we can argue for is the future has to be imagined. And that what, process for imagining... What imagine, would you like to imagine? And so, if it's just Manu Mathai speaking... Yes, what is yes, Manu Mathai's conception of what the future... We'll have to radically reallocate... Will be ought to be. Huh? We have to radically shrink the size of our economies. Right? Shrink, shrink from where we are. Shrink the size of our economies. I mean, in India, perhaps not as much, but elsewhere in the world, considerably shrink our economies. We have to think about expanding very selectively and ask for who for how long, right? We don't have... See, there is not a single industrialized, developed country in the world that is not an ecological debtor. That's a fact. Yeah. Right. Every country that is in, acknowledged as an industrialized country today has deep colonial history, has a history of externalizing costs onto other people, other societies, etc., civilizations. That's a fact. So that is what we are trying to emulate on a planet that's full. That must be a joke, <laughs> right? So you've gone from this empty planet to a full planet. How can we do? You cannot reproduce the industrialization of the West in the 21st century. If you do that, what you're going to do essentially, what we can say is, hey, they they screwed up. We will have our fun screwing up as well. We have a right to screw up as well. Yeah, and that's fine. You you can take that position and go ahead. I'm fine with that. Just acknowledge it and do it, right? And then we'll all go down the tube together. (laughs) So, So if 200 years of colonialism did not allow India to have a stake in modernity, the enterprise and the process of modernity, we can't catch up with 200 years of lost modernity in 20 years. And the cost that comes with that then is we have to bear it. There's an interesting number. I mean, there's a number I'll throw out. So in in the late 30s, there was briefly, there was a National Planning Commission. Before the Planning planning Commission comes about after the National Planning Committee, it was called. Nehru chaired it and a bunch of, I think, 15 people were on it. And they had an energy subcommittee. And one of the reports talks about how, uh, and at, at that point, in the late 1930s, our electricity consumption was about 9 kilowatt hours, 9 or 10 kilowatt hours per person per year. Very small number, right? And the report talked about how that number was 15 times less than, in the language of those days, civilized countries of the world. Right? That's the 1930s language, civilized countries of the world. Fast forward... You're not a big fan of the catch-up game. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll tell you why. Fast forward seven decades, right? What is the ratio? It's roughly 1 to 15 still. Yeah. Right. So what is what is this game here? What are we trying to do? Right. The model of that the West offers is not I'm, I'm absolutely certain about it. That is not what we can do. Right. We have to have a future of our of our own, which is on our terms. And if you are globally responsible citizens, it, I think it's in, in a way and to make it more banal, it's an energy mix question right now, whether you have yes. how many ever kilowatt hours or whatever. You need energy coming from somewhere for some kind of centralized energy sure. purposes. Yeah. Uh, where should that come from? And more importantly, question. how should this energy mix and does move? Does one burn coal-fired plants? Yeah. Does one put solar? How, this and that. Does how should one, this energy mix move? In the 60, in 1960s, Kosambi was talking a lot about solar energy, right? And he had a f- famous breakup with uh, Baba on this issue, right? He was talking about why why should we go around fussing about fusion and fission when the sun is doing it? Right, fusion at least. And we Solar power to, is nuclear power anyway. It's nuclear power, but <laughs> let's learn how to distant. harvest it, right? Yeah. And uh, can we harvest that? We've not invested in harvesting. 
solar energy. And what is the state of our solar energy industry today? Zilch, we're essentially buyers of solar panels, right? We, our R&D is not up there. Well, our again, co- I think one has to look at the life cycle cost, right, with what? all the externalities and where it because there are all kinds of rare metals that get mined why, even there. Why so. we, okay, before photo, photovoltaics, you can just look at passive heating. Right, there's no rare <laughs> anything. You're just capturing heat and water, or using. We'll end with you, uh, yeah, uh, Professor, yeah. Professor Grover. Where? What's the future? Where are we headed? Future, I don't know. Uh, future, thousand years, thousand years later. Future is something which uh, uh, I think there are so many things happening in science. Always, one does not know. We might uh, have a, a space-based solar power station, where in the geostationary orbit, uh, we may have. Uh, Solar panels and beam energy down with the help of beam microwaves. Beam energy? Like how, how, how do you <laughs> beam energy? Uh, beam electricity. So this is one Please? kind of yeah. possibility which is being talked about. We may so have, we'll have uh, our own sun. Uh, we have, may have uh, fusion uh, power. Uh, uh, ITER is under construction is in Is fusion France. power possible? Uh, fusion power, yes. They are looking at first plasma in 2025 followed by... Uh, further uh, deuterium tritium reaction by 2035 we'll uh, know the answer even if it's delayed a little so around that kind of time frame we'll uh, have some answer we may be successful in carbon sequestration or genetic engineering may throw up some bacteria which can absorb carbon genetic uh, engineering may tell us that you can you grow sound some so kind nice of, and optimistic uh, algae and that LG, I think some experimentation is going on. From that LG, one can harvest uh, petroleum. Algae, yeah. And uh, this is uh, uh, these are all uh, various scientific developments going on. I am always optimistic about uh, science. Science is science and technology have brought us to this stage uh, where uh, life expectancy has uh, gone up uh, multiple. Uh, Times and I'm sure we'll continue. I think Manu will so say, "Live longer for what?" Well, no, no. I'm just if I might pitch in here, life expectancy is gone, but life itself is under risk. Yeah, the quality of life. No, no, life as we kind of know it, right? We're actually living through the sixth great extinction, right? And this is like you know, people from the IPBES uh, will talk about these things. These are not uh, life expectancy for some of us. I many of us actually have gone up. I mean, that's that's a fact. So, Professor Grover, you are the only cheery one here. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still cheery. Tomorrow we may have, say, room temperature superconductors. We'll have uh, that maglev trains and maglev cars uh, where transportation will be quite easy without any energy. Uh, I see the last uh, four centuries where a lot of progress has been made on the strength of uh, technological development, on the strength of uh, new scientific discoveries and will perhaps continue to move in the same there direction. There is, do you, do you, last question, when you think of nuclear power as it is in the public imagination of the world, not a scientist like you who sits next to a nuclear reactor, do you think the, that perception is likely to change? Can I, can I sort of jump yes. in there? So the answer, not the answer, but those are two different paradigms. The two paradigms are globalization and planetarity. Hmm. What is globalization? Globalization is the understanding that I, human, am a central agent of the globe. Planetarity is the understanding that planet plus alterity. So I am just another species that is part of this planet. I do not centralize myself. Sure. Your question about futures comes back to that. Yeah. How do I imagine? Do I imagine the futures in the domain of globalization? Or do I imagine in the plan- origin of planetarity? Where I am just another, 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 species. another species in this planet. 
that i think would be all i think professor grover is uh, thinking of human beings you're cheery about human beings as a species as well right? yes 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 I mean, not not just all other species i am cheery i think uh, humans well i'm nothing a, i'm nothing for human beings per se but it'll be okay <laughs> to hang around for a few more centuries <laughs> good i think that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank you for coming thank you thank you thank, thank, you. thank you so much